You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. everyone. This is Michelle Camayo from Bolton and Company, and I have a guest speaker with me today, Nicole Cam from Fisher Phillips. She's a partner there at Fisher Phillips, and she's on the line with us. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for joining. Hi, good morning. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's get started. Let me tell you a little bit about Nicole. I'm super excited that she's here. And um, and I and I want to really emphasize this because Fisher Phillips and Nicole in particular have been an amazing partner for Bolton and Company since this whole thing started. Um, there's so much good information that Fisher Phillips puts out on their website. I cannot believe everything that's on there. And a lot of the times, if, if you're on the line and you've asked me a question and it's more employment related, I actually go to either Nicole or I go to the Fisher Phillips website to actually get the answer because that's not our, our um, range of expertise. So, Nicole, I, I have to thank you for providing support and being so generous with your time, and which I know is ex- extremely limited. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much. And we're happy to be there as a resource. We have a fantastic um, set of teams in place to address COVID questions, SBA small loan questions, and all sorts of the main issues that are coming up of, of late. Yeah, so I was looking at your bio, Nicole, because I wanted to properly understand what you do besides being an employment attorney. And so I was looking, and it, it, it states that you provide strategic counsel and management training on employment issues. Um, advise employers on preventive steps to minimize potential exposure from issues uh, like wage and hour compliance, and then also, you know, handling mass layoffs, which now, unfortunately, has been uh, a lot more frequent during this Mm -hmm. time. And then, and then saying that you handle a full range of labor and employment matters, including claims before the DOL, the EDD, EEOC, and um, DLSE. Is there anything you don't do? Should we, is there anything we should know about what don't you do or anything you want to add to that, to that list? Um, that covers it. I mean, certainly I, I really enjoy working with clients kind of to do the, the compliance, the upstream work to try to minimize potential claims. I always say you can't eliminate claims if you're doing business, particularly in California. Um, but taking the steps to make sure that you're as compliant as possible, being aware of all the wage and hour, the non-discrimination, the harassment, all the issues that come up on a regular basis for us is really key. And then luckily my firm has, like I said, a, a fantastic bench of resources with um, traditional labor attorneys who practice in union areas. We have some ERISA attorneys. Um, so we have a great, uh, I have access to really a lot of the best minds in employment law. Awesome. And for those of you listening, I would love it if you would go to www.fisherphillips.com right now, go to the middle of the page, look at the legal alerts, look at the facts to the left, and these are boxes that you click on. Just take a look at all of the information that's out there for you. I'll reference this again. And I feel so strongly about this website because not only has it helped me um, you know, sort of round out what I know and what I can answer that's out of my scope, 
but it, it, it should be something that, that all employers can reference first before they, you know, start to engage in a, in a full-on um, retainer arrangement. So it's, it's really cool. So today, what we do every week is we, we like to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. What I find is that our HR leaders, our business owners, want validation on what they read. They want that second set of eyes, and, and maybe they even want some guidance where none may even exist. And our hope is that this conversation provides a little bit of that validation and some guidance that helps you as the employer make a decision that you're comfortable with. And what, the, the reason why Nicole and I can talk to this and why we might be able to br bring a stronger perspective is that we work with employers, many employers on a daily basis that are trying to be compliant or trying to understand what they should do and what the regulations say they can and can't do. So we have these practical discussions with employers and we've got, we, so if, if you come to us, it, we may already have talked to other employers and we can give you an idea of what other employers are doing or um, what you should be doing. We're not giving legal advice today on this phone call, obviously. And just note that the information we talk about today could change. And in fact, it does sometimes change or Sometimes it doesn't necessarily change, but further clarifications come up. So keep that in mind as we talk today. All right, as always, we'll talk about some updates from last week. Our key topics continue to be FFCRA and the, and the CARES Act. And then we'll go into our toilet paper talk segment, which is relevant issues from last week and our guidance wish list, and then we'll take some questions and answers as well as go over some, um, some commonly, question, commonly posed questions. For some highlights of the last week, we have that the Department of Labor added new Q&As to their FSCRA fact page. And these Q&As serve to clarify the calculation of paid leave and the interaction with other paid leave because there was some contradictory uh, statements made, appeared to be from the DOL temporary leave or temporary rule that was issued, I think that was last week or the week before. So what they're doing is they're clarifying that. So we've talked about this in prior weeks when we've had this discussion, how important it is to follow that page and to know when updates are made. And, and so this is me telling you there have been some updates so please ensure that you're checking out questions 80 through 89 or 80 through 88 on, on that fact page. For LA City employers, don't forget that that supplemental paid sick leave ordinance is and has been signed into law. Uh, that's been a couple weeks now, so that's not necessarily from last week, but I didn't, I still wanted to put that on your radar in case you have not seen that yet if you've dialed into the line. And Nicole, would you mind taking these next two bullet points? Because I know that, that you've got your pulse on that a little bit more than I do. Sure, sure. So, um, so I'll start with giving a little bit of information on the recently passed California uh, supplemental paid sick leave for purposes of COVID. It went into effect on April 16th, and it's fairly narrow in that it applies only to uh, food sector workers. And it's intended to be a, a gap filler for the, those employers who are not covered by the FFCRA. So it 
specifically addresses employers that have 500 or more employees nationwide throughout the United States. If you do fall into that category, you will be covered by this additional leave requirement, um, and it, uh, it's going to be relevant to those workers who work in specific industries or occupations, for example, um, food packaging, food processing, agriculture, farm work. So those who fall under those specific wage orders, it's 3, 8, 13, and 14. Or a individual who uh, works for a food facility, which are generally restaurants and grocery stores and the like, or a person that delivers food from a food facility through the hiring entity. And uh, some of the unique points about this particular law is that it defines the worker as a, a food sector worker, not an employee, and the, the, uh, the company as a hiring entity, not an employer. So it's expanded and intended uh, theoretically to cover specifically independent contractors like Uber Eats drivers and Postmates drivers and those kind of individuals who wouldn't otherwise normally be eligible for paid sick leave or supplemental paid sick leave. Um, it tracks in terms of the entitlement of up to 80 hours for full-time workers and then a prorated for part-time workers and has some information on how to prorate for those part-time workers. Um, the reasons that a worker can take leave are a little bit broader as well. It's those who fall under the normal category of uh, falling subject to an order, a local, state, or federal order. But it also covers those employers who have been advised, I'm sorry, those employees or workers who have been advised by the hiring entity not to come to work due to concerns about transmission. And those who've also been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine. So it's a bit broader than the emergency paid sick leave categories. And there's also a few other caveats that if this does apply to you, certainly feel welcome to reach out and we can go over those additional requirements. Um, as Michelle mentioned, Los Angeles City has an effective uh, paid sick leave supplemental also for the larger employers not covered by the FSCRA. 500 or more employees within the city of Los Angeles or 2,000 plus within the United States. This one tracks more similar to the emergency paid sick leave in terms of their permitted uses, the cap, the up to 80 hours of supplemental. Um, but specifically is a note that employers may not require medical certification or a doctor's note for the use of the leave. And that's something that's come up quite a bit is this question of can we require a doctor's note? And so the employer is going to have to look at whether there's any order in place that is restricting the requirement of a doctor's note. For example, in San Francisco, early on, um, the, the city amended their, their local paid sick leave and included the restriction about requiring a doctor's note for use of the leave. Um, and then there's also the practical issue of can employees uh, easily access these healthcare provider notes and certifications because of the, uh, the strains on the healthcare system and the limited access to hospitals and clinics at this point in time. And so even though an employer can require it, sometimes practically it might not be something that uh, is easily accessible. And so in terms of maintaining documentation of these leaves, if you can't obtain that information immediately, at least reserve the right to follow up with the employee at a later date and get that conforming documentation. And we'll mention a little bit more about documentation later on in the program. Um, and then Nicole, I, I noted in the book. Oh, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Sorry, Nicole. 
I, I'm no, still, I'm sort of processing the food sector workers and the independent contractors. So it, if you don't mind, I want to clarify if this is, so if we have an Uber Eats driver who's classified as an independent contractor and they're covered under this, this um, paid leave for food sector workers, it, right. it, is that, so is that essentially saying that Uber Eats now has to pay the paid sick leave for someone who, who they consider to be an independent contractor? Yes, yes. And what the state did is they issued uh, rules and regulations, kind of FAQs on these, on this uh, new order. And one of the specific questions was, does this apply only to employees? And the answer is no. It applies to independent contractors as well. Yeah. So if you're a covered entity here, then this is an additional item to to be aware of. And we are, we're putting in place a, a sample policy um, that employers can add as an addendum to their handbook or for contractors would just want to separately issue, but uh, having a policy in place is really important. Uh, same with the emergency paid sick leave and emergency FMLA, having a, an addendum to the handbook with a policy laying out the, the criteria and the restrictions and the limitations is going to be important for employers. Okay, so and so I'm thinking about, you know, those who might be listening on the line, and, and for me, I'm just trying to digest this. So, any food sector workers, and so we may have those on the line that aren't Uber Eats or whatnot, but they you may, may mm-hmm. have many food sector employers on the line who employ both employees and independent contractors. And so I just want to make sure that, that they also need to provide this for those independent contractors. And I want to make sure that that was caught because I feel, to me, that that sort of blows my mind a little bit like wow I would not have expected it does it does you know but that's that's the current understanding that is the guidance from the state as of now and there has been Mm -hmm. quite a bit of litigation by uh, different independent contractors for example Uber and Lyft and uh, in with regard to COVID and the lack of benefits that are being provided to these individuals and this in part is intended to address that. Okay. And is a food, I've got this question here. So I, it, it just popped up and I think it's a great question. Is the food sector, is this considered restaurants as well? They can be. Yes. They okay. would fall under okay. a food facility, which are generally restaurants and grocery stores and other food providers. Okay. If they were closed, if they are closed for business since let's say middle of March, uh, and they're still closed. I, I assume they wouldn't have to provide this leave, but I also at least want to ask you the question. Right. Well, it has to be somebody that is working, that works for an essential business, so is one in one of these categories, and is leaving their home to perform work. So if the individual is furloughed, if they're not performing work, if they're in a position that's not an essential worker, then they would not be eligible for this kind of um, uh, supplemental paid sick leave. Okay, great. Thank you for answering that question. Did you want me to fill in anything else on the other local uh, paid sick leave? Uh, no, I th- well, I think it's to, it, just to note that San Jose and San Francisco did pass those paid sick time ordinances. And I've just got a few highlights there on the, the screen so everyone can see um, what, what that, who that applies to, I should say. Yeah. All right. I just want to make sure we don't have any other questions regarding us, the food okay. sector or yeah. the LA um, city. 
One last note, the, the state will be issuing a notice to employees. The labor commissioner is tasked to do that by the 23rd, which is today. Um, so stay tuned that if you are a hiring entity under this, um, under this new order, there will be a notice that has to be posted in the workplace and distributed to employees. Thank you. All right, then the last highlight that we really talked about last week on, on our episode is that the, the 401k provisions of the CARES Act is now garnering attention. And that's because a lot of employers have had now made a decision on whether or not they're opting in or opting out to these 401k provisions. And that is, there are two important ones, and that's the, the hardship withdrawals and the loan provisions. And this is... Um, this is great because employees can access their their 401k because of the public health emergency. Um, but as Patrick said last week, there are other things to consider. So if you were if you didn't have a chance to listen in last week and you want more information about that, I would encourage you to download the Camayo's Compliance Talk podcast, and you can get that on iTunes, and you can listen to last week's episode via the podcast. Let's move on to something I talk about every single week. And every week I, I go through it a little bit faster than the week before because I can see that employers are now starting to understand and starting to digest the information. And so um, I, I, I want to get to more of the employment questions today. So I'll just kind of quickly go over the FSCRA. Now, those are the two major provisions the emergency FMLA expansion, emergency paid sick leave. Emergency FMLA is for one reason, and that reason is to those unable to work or telework because they have to care for a minor, minor child if the child's school has been closed. Under both leaves, the group health benefits must be maintained. And both provisions are applicable to the private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees and all applicable governmental in, in, entities. And if you're an employer with fewer than 50 employees and you're listening, please do know that there's a very narrow exemption for your employer. And what a narrow exemption means is that you're not blanketly exempted. The narrow exemption only applies to one reason for the leave. And, and you really have to demonstrate a hardship to take advantage of that. So just note that if you have, you're an employer with fewer than 50 employees, you're not completely exempt from FSCRA. And then the qualifying reason for emergency FMLA, we've got there, you know, you can see if the, it's just one reason. So this, to me, this is the simplest one. It has the least amount of reasons. Um, if the employee is unable to work or telework because of the, the child care closure, you can request some special documentation for, for those children that are 14 and over. And I thought this was a, a great point that we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, if someone's 17, let's say you have a child at home that's 17, and you tell your employer you're unable to work or telework because you're caring for a 17-year-old, well, we, we found that the DOL kind of said, yeah, you're right. That's, that would be a little bit questionable. I mean, a 17-year-old should be fairly autonomous. So employers are allowed to ask for a, an additional statement from the employee, ask, you know, kind of detailing why they cannot 
uh, why they need to sort of watch over their 17-year-old. Um, and Nicole, did you have anything to add to that that I that I didn't that might be important? Uh, the only other question is um, if if an individual, a son or daughter, is over 18 but has special needs or disabilities and can't otherwise care for themselves, they would also qualify under this reason. Thank you. All right, we have a question about EFMLA, and since we're on this slide now, let's go ahead and and see if we can answer this. Does the EFMLA apply if you need to care for a senior who would normally go to a senior daycare? And that this is a great, I have, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I haven't <laughs> had this question yet. I, I feel like it, 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 it does not, but I haven't had this question yet. Have you? That is a new one, but there have been quite a bit of questions about those 65 and over who might either be uh, vulnerable or especially susceptible. And so we can go into some of those um, questions. But in terms of, of the specific categories under the emergency paid sick leave, the FFCRA, it's uh, the, the exemption number five or the qualifying reason number five is caring for a son or daughter, a son or daughter, as we had just talked about, not necessarily an individual in a vulnerable category or an elderly. However, there are other categories to consider. For example, if you are caring for an individual, which is broadly defined, which can include a, uh, a parent or a grandparent or somebody of an elderly uh, category, if they're subject to the order or self-quarantined, uh, have been either advised to self-quarantine or subject specifically to an order that advises those in a specific category to maintain um, isolation. And so you really wanna look at which category they might fall into and then also taking a look at local orders because there's a lot of unique nuance to the different local orders that are fairly uh, more expansive than the FFCRA. For example, a uh, question came up yesterday about um, an individual who was exposed, a family member who had tested positive, and that employee themselves have not been experiencing symptoms or advised by a healthcare provider to stay home. Um, or was subject to an, one of the other categories. However, there's a local Los Angeles uh, County public health order that says that all individuals who have been exposed, and it defines uh, exposed as close contact, an intimate partner, um, those who have spent more than 10 minutes within six feet of somebody who has been uh, tested positive or expressed, exp experiencing symptoms, that those individuals are required to quarantine in their home until 14 days after the last date they were in contact with that individual. So theoretically, that could be another order. So it's state, federal, or local order that might cause that individual to quarantine or self-quarantine. And that's different than, and I know this question has come up quite a bit, as to whether an order is requiring the business to shut down and is that person entitled who can't work or can't telework um, entitled to emergency paid sick leave under FFCRA. And that reason uh, unique in that it applies to the whole business, um, it does not, at least our understanding currently until there's further guidance, that it does not trigger that FFCRA um, qualifying reason number one. It has to specifically apply to an individual. So if, for example, the order said, like we're talking about, that all those over uh, 65 should 
self-quarantine or self-isolate, then they would be individually affected versus the whole business being affected. Yes, a great that. distinction because I know there are there continue to be confusion about that as, as being one of the reasons for leave. And we'll talk about that on the next slide. For emergency FMLA, I want to close this one out a little bit to say that the, the person who asked, does the EFMLA apply if you would need to care for a senior who would normally go to senior daycare? The answer under EFMLA specifically is no, because the reg state son or daughter. But as Nicole was saying, it, it could very well apply under the, the next, uh, under the, the other provision, which is the paid sick leave. Correct. Assuming one of the qualifying reasons under that section is met, correct? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's look at emergency paid sick leave because this is also where Nicole, I want to tie back in that that uh, quarantine um, mm -hmm. or the the uh, be, someone being under a local order or state order and not being able to work because of that, as opposed to the business right. closing. So the reason mm -hmm. for the emergency paid sick leave, this is the one that's a little bit more complicated because there are more more qualifying reasons. The first one is the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. So, Nicole, you gave that perfect example. If someone under that local LA County ordinance that, that you mentioned has to quarantine for, you know, 14 days and their employer has worked for them, but yet they cannot mm -hmm. work because of this order, then that employee now qualifies for emergency paid sick leave. So that would be an example right. of, of a local order interfering with, I don't want to say interfering with, but um, the quarantine Adding another order, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, means mm -hmm. that that employee can't work and the employer has work. Now, if the employer has no work because mm -hmm. they're not an essential business, let's say, that is not a qualifying reason under the emergency paid sick leave. Correct. Correct. So I'm hoping it, that, I'm hoping that the, kind of right. clarifies. Yeah. yeah, one of the initial hurdles is that the employee is unable to work or telework due to one of the reasons. So if there's no work or if they can't work remotely, then, then we go to the second step, which is looking to which of the potential qualifying reasons they might fall into. And if that is met, then we would apply the emergency paid sick leave. Yes. Okay. So then we go. Let's. I would just want to take a look at a few of these. Some of them are pretty straightforward. Let's look at the one that might might qualify someone under the reason that they're caring for a senior, um, who generally goes to senior daycare. I don't see one here, but let's say the employee is caring for an individual who mm -hmm. is subject to a quarantine or isolation order related to COVID or has been advised by a healthcare provider to self-quarantine due to concerns related to COVID-19. Because of that language, because of the word individual, Nicole, would you agree that, you know, it could potentially be a senior, um, you know, your senior mother or father that you need to go take care of because of, of the, they're subject to a quarantine or isolation order? Exactly, exactly. So that's a fairly broad term that's used there. It's not limited to son or daughter or even family member. So if it's an individual who is subject to one of these orders um, or has been advised by the healthcare provider, then that would be another reason to potentially apply the emergency paid sick leave. 
Okay. All right. So yeah, you can you can see the the reasons here. I just those two I think are the ones that um, I'm seeing that employers have, just have a little bit of a tougher time there because of that gray area. And the other, the yeah. first one is nuanced. The first one is nuanced. So that's very that very. Fun. And I'll give another yeah another example that's come up this week is a client in the construction industry. So it's an essential business. But the worker is not a construction worker. He's a worker that um, can do some administrative work remotely and has been pushing pretty hard for application of the emergency paid sick leave. And the company responded that because you can perform work remotely and you don't have any of the other qualifying reasons, um, then we're not going to apply emergency paid sick leave at this time. However, if some other reason arises, for example, if you've been advised to self-quarantine and not, are not able to perform work or if you're experiencing symptoms and seeking a diagnosis, then we will reconsider. But currently, he's able to uh, work remotely and he doesn't have a qualifying reason. And this employee actually reached out to the Department of Labor and unfortunately received some inaccurate information. I'm, I'm pretty concerned about who they have answering questions on that end because the information was very I inconsistent and inaccurate. Um, oh and so gosh. we had to actually, yeah, we had to follow up with the DOL to, to clarify and, and just, uh, you know, be aware that, um, that the information that, that the DOL is disseminating may not be pointing employees in the right direction at all times. So you want to handle that cautiously. Well, that's scary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Big red flag. So yeah, exactly. So I'm I'm thinking if I'm an employer and my and my and this happened to my employee, it, what what would I do, Nicole? What do you recommend? Would they call someone like you and say this just happened? Can you help me? Or I'm just trying to think of like what would someone do? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, to I, I worked for. Yeah, I worked very closely with the client to, uh, you know, to kind of navigate the situation. Um, we, we handled it similarly in part to how we would engage in an interactive dialogue. We made sure to get as much information as possible. We tried to follow up with both the DOL and the employee before coming to a conclusion. We also weighed the risks and benefit of possibly just offering the emergency paid sick leave to the employee despite our position mm -hmm. that it was not necessarily <laughs> you know, eligible, um, and then potentially having the risk of not obtaining the tax credit, but then on the flip side, mitigating the risk of a potential claim by the employee. But then that kind of opens up the question of, well, if we do it for this employee, do we have to do it for all employees? And the company was just not in a position to have that kind of open door possibility and decided mm -hmm. to, at this point in time, take the position that, you know, because these requirements were not met, you're not eligible. Again, however, if circumstances change, please let us know because it's possible that one of the other qualifying reasons might be triggered at some point in time. Got it. So you were there. You essentially your role in that was was to to kind of guide the employer through this decision that they ultimately made and give them the pros and the cons and and help clarify what I'm sure was very confusing when the DOL gave misinformation. Yes. Yeah, yeah, concerning okay. and confusing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So I'm going to move on to documentation, and I and I've gotten a few different questions about this. The documentation with regards to um, children over or 14 or and over. Um, 
So I want to I want to stop and, and answer that. Is, if there is a question, one question is: Is there any guidance on the type of information we can request for 14 and over? Absolutely, yes, there is. Please go to the DOL facts page. Um, their pandemic FFCRA questions and answers, and I cannot remember the. Oh, here it is. Um, I have it right here. <laughs> documentation. You can see it on the, the bottom of the screen, the DOL documentation. There's the website, dol.gov slash agencies, et cetera. Questions 15 and 16 will clarify what you can ask for. And generally, I can say it's a statement from the employee. And in general terms, as far as the documentation, Nicole, would you agree it's generally going to be a statement? You're not going to be able to go to the healthcare provider. You're not going to be able to go to the daycare provider. You're just, you're, you're collecting statements from employees. Um, you know, our position is, I think that a statement from the employee is, is great to add to the file. We've also mm -hmm. put together a FFCRA request form, leave request form that has a lot of, um, it will help gather information and confirm information, including as to whether the employee wants to apply any um, other sick leave or vacation to the time off. For example, if they're at two thirds the rate of pay, if they want to top themselves off with any other benefits, that's all part of the, uh, the leave request form. Um, and then if you're gathering information for the reason that the employee is staying home um, for a, a, a younger minor child, Due to a school closure, closure or childcare closure, you can request a, a statement or a confirmation from the school, which are pretty easy to get. We've received a lot of emails and uh, other communication that will be fairly easy to uh, to forward to the employee to keep with the file. Okay, great. Thank you for that. I'm just looking to see if we have any other questions regarding that that we did not answer. Okay. All right. So, and also with regards to documentation, you can go to the IRS website or the DOL. I find that the DOL is a little bit easier to, to digest the information in their Q&As than it is with the IRS. But you, I, I would highly recommend, and I know I've said this before, but bookmark these pages. And I know the IRS link, you can see it here. It's, it's really long, so you can't just, you don't want to just type that in. You can simply Google you know, IRS uh, COVID-19 related facts, and you'll, you'll get to that page in a few short clicks. And then you can review questions 44 through 46. And the DOL, as you can see, their website there, questions 15 and 16, provide more guidance. Right. I'll just add one more tip on the documentation. Um, we're advising clients to add a separate line item or a pay code for the application of emergency paid sick leave and emergency FMLA. So that it, when it comes time to um, accounting for that, it will be easy to pull and, and assemble that information. Oh, that's a great tip. Thank you, Nicole. So establishing mm -hmm. that separate pay code in their payroll system, which will then make the um, obtaining the tax credits and the documentation will make that process easier. Exactly. And it'll be reflected accurately on the pay stub as well, which will be important. And a question here for EFMLA, what documentation should be sent to the employee, the WH-381 or the WH-382? I'm not familiar with those forms. Nicole, do those forms sound familiar? 
Yeah, you know, generally we like to tailor uh, the communication to the employee rather than using forms. You know, we find that forms can often be um, not comprehensive enough or not tailored enough. And so our preference is to um, start with the FFCRA leave request form. So that'll be the initial documentation and then follow up with a, a personalized leave letter um, designating the time, starting the clock running, noting the need for it and putting any other relevant information, for example, continuation of benefits, um, and uh, if the employee has to pay any portion of the premiums, any other sort of conditions on the, the leave. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. The next section we talk about, and we'll do this briefly because we talked about this on last week's episode, it, it relates to the CARES Act. The, the highlights here are something I mention every week and something I'm a lot of us that have an HSA or FSA or HRA are excited about the fact that the over-the-counter drugs is back. We can now purchase over-the-counter medicine using our HSA or our HRA or our FSA, as well as something we never had before, which is menstrual products. So that is permanent as of now. <laughs> so unless they repeal it, this is permanent. There's no expiration date on this. And it's actually retroactive back to January 1, 2020. So if you saved your receipts and you could substantiate this, the, the purchase for medicine or menstrual products, then your FSA administrator, you know, you could reimburse yourself for that. And if you have an HSA, then you can go online and reimburse yourself for that as well. So that's exciting. And, and not necessarily news because we've known this now for, gosh, I want to say three weeks or so, whenever the CARES Act was enacted. For COVID-19 testing, just be aware that there's no cost sharing for testing. This is a, a federal um, law at this point, so it's no, no longer optional. There's no cost sharing for testing, including self-funded and fully insured plans. This will expire, expire at the end of the public health emergency. And I, I want to say that self-funded plans in particular should pay close attention because you, need, you will need to amend your plan. You'll need to take steps to do that or at least work with your stop-loss provider to do that. On fully insured plans, it's much easier because the carrier is the one that needs to do all of the, the administrative work on the back end to update their policies to ensure there's no cost sharing. But when you're in a self-insured arrangement, as I'm sure you know, there's a little bit more um, accountability there in, in ensuring that your plan has what you need. And that includes covering the cost of COVID-19 with no cost share. I mentioned this briefly, the payroll protection program. There was, there's a new stimulus package that's waiting on the president's signature, and that's going to include more funds to refill the, the loan coffers. Someone mentioned last week that the money ran out, I believe it was Thursday morning, and now they're going to add another $320 billion to, to that fund. So I'm, I'm sure a lot of employers are happy to hear that. And finally, the CARES Act included those 401k provisions, which your company may have already communicated to loan or to communicated to 401 participants regarding the loan, the loan provisions and the hardship withdrawal. 
few takeaways before we move to the next section. There, you know, be sure to pay attention to the guidance that's released by the DOL and the IRS or any other government agency that's applicable to your organization that you need to follow. For example, when I'm at, on my toolbar, I have the DOL fact page saved as a bookmark as well as the IRS. So I highly recommend you do that as well. If you need to, if you're a company subject to FSCRA, I would say it's, it's almost a necessity to save that, that DOL fact page. There's so much data there that's available to you to, to kind of look through. And this was especially important during the first few weeks of, of all of this new legislation being enacted. And it still is important as we get these local orders. It's not all answers are going to be clear and going to be readily available. I mean, everyone, the government agencies are passing laws fast and furiously. And so there's not always the clarification that we want to see available on the first day. And I'll add that there's sometimes been uh, changes in the interpretation. So there may have been an understanding at one point in time that then was either clarified or revised going forward. So definitely stay tuned. Right, right. All right, my favorite segment, because it's called Toilet Paper Talk, and it just makes me giggle. <laughs> so the relevant issues from last week, I'm going to start off with a few things that I saw last week that have become really relevant. And during COVID-19. And then Nicole's going to talk about a few from her perspective as well. So the first thing I continue to see that I get questions on, and, and uh, I actually wrote a blog. We just posted it yesterday. It's, so you can go to boltingco.com slash blog, and you can review some of the common qualifying events that exist for FSAs. I've had several employers ask me the past week, did the DOL or the IRS, did they add new qualifying events for, for these FSA holders or, or even under the, the group health plan, let's say? And the answer is no. There's been no guidance. There, no, there's nothing new under the qualifying events. It's, it's just what's always been there. But there are certain events that certainly fall under that are more common now. For example, when it comes to dependent care FSAs, if there's a change in cost and coverage, that has, that has always been a qualifying event for most FSAs. If there's a change in cost and coverage, you can decrease or increase your dependent care contribution. So in a practical example, here's what I did a few weeks ago is I emailed our HR department and told them that I need to stop my dependent care contributions because my child care provider had closed. So I experienced a significant decrease in cost. So I needed to stop my contribution, which of course is allowable under the current regulation. And the next question then is, can I restart them when it opens up? And the answer is yes, that is another qualifying event. It's a change in cost so that you can restart your, um, your dependent care contribution. And another topic I've hear, heard a lot about, a lot of interest about, is Section 139. Uh, this was a section of the IRS tax code that was essentially triggered when Trump declared a national emergency. And the TPAs have now started, out roll, have now started rolling out programs 
that one has dubbed employee care cards. And I thought that was a little bit um, catchy. So I, I use that here. Now that is, IGO calls it an employee care card and they're TPA. These are, this is an employer funded account. So it's similar to an HRA if you want to look at it from the standpoint that it's employer funded. It's tax free assistance to the employee. So again, similar to the HRA. And these funds can be used to purchase clothing, education, grocery items, office supplies, and unreimbursed medical expenses can also be used for that. So I'll give you an example. We have an employer that we were speaking with, and their, their employees lost access to a major healthcare group in, uh, in a more rural area, and it's due to COVID-19. And so the employer wanted to do something to help the employees during this time now that they lost a significant provider in their area. And now that provider is out of network. So the employer asked just this morning, they said, can I use, can I put a section 139 in place and then fund it so that my employees don't have to pay out of pocket for these unreimbursed medical expenses that might be incurred if they go out of network? And the answer is yes. Under Section 139, yes, they can put that in place. And, and, and so that's, that's one example that, that might make a little bit more sense to why an employer would want to do this. It's really an, a very interesting and, and generous um, benefit to the employee, of course. And then furloughs, we, we, are, we are, as employers are unfortunately coming to terms with or, or have an understanding of, of whether they're going to furlough an employee, we get questions of regarding, you know, can I keep that person on benefits? Can I keep their medical coverage active? And, and the answer is generally yes. A lot of the health insurance carriers are relaxing eligibility guidelines and allowing for the contract to allow for these employees to stay on the plan. Now, if you're self-insured, you essentially write your own eligibility rules. So if you're self-insured, you would want to amend your eligibility to include these employees that are furloughed if that is your intent. So in general, you can preserve the benefits at least for a, a short amount of time. And, but I often wonder when I, when I work with employers on benefits-related topics, there's also employment-related concerns. What does it mean when you furlough someone from an employment perspective? Are there implications? So, Nicole, I was hoping you could talk about, you know, some of the implications of what it means to furlough someone from an employment-related uh, standpoint. For example, can I furlough, furlough someone indefinitely? I, is that something that good that question? You do? Yeah, um, you know th th that's an area that's a little bit unclear as to when the furlough effectively becomes a termination. But in California, it's less of an an issue because there's a requirement that if you're going to furlough an employee for with and the employee will not be performing any work at all for more than a pay period the final pay obligations under Labor Code 201 to 203 kick in. And so that's an important understanding to have in place is that if you're going to put this furlough in place, you need to be prepared with final paychecks, including all wages through the last day and all earned an unused vacation or PTO. And I know that a lot of employees are not 
thrilled about that because if and when they get called back, they won't have, they'll have an empty vacation bank. Um, but that is a requirement under the under California law with regard to furloughs, regardless of the amount of time, as long as it's longer than a pay period, you're not going to call back the individual within the same pay period, which most times furloughs are not. Some of the distinctions are, well, technically furloughs have to do with um, generally with public employees, but furloughs can also be a considered like a, a staggered schedule or reduced schedule, a week on, a week off, or four days a week as opposed to five. Um, and there are, of course, considerations as to whether the employee is an exempt employee or a non-exempt employee when implementing those reductions. Um, so those are some those are some main ones. And then the last point to consider is whether warn notice is required, uh, depending on the size of the company, the number of affected employees, and and some other circumstances regarding the furlough or the layoff. Warn notice may be required. And in California, there's a California Warn Act that applies to smaller employers, so 75 or more at a single location. And there are additional requirements. You have to notify the EDD, the local government officials, and other individuals involved in the, in the uh, process of the uh, impact that's taking place. The, you can put, if known, the anticipated duration. There's not a requirement um, to, uh, to have a return date. If you do have a return date and it's extended, you may be required, however, to put uh, an, an addendi addendum to the warn notice in place or some extended warn notice. Um, and so to avoid that, you can potentially have the indefinite return date. Um, but the benefit of the furlough ideally is to keep the employee somewhat more connected to the company. The intent is to bring the employee back. That will not stop the employee if they find other work from moving on, um, but it, it has a different sort of ethos than, than a layoff would. But essentially, in, in practice, it really is very similar to a temporary layoff for purposes of final pay, warn notice, and other requirements. And the employee, of course, will be entitled to unemployment insurance during that period, and the employer under CalWarn um, is required to notify the employee of that entitlement and how to access those benefits. Thank you. Hopefully that's helpful. And so from there, Nicole, what, what have you seen on in your end that have been the relevant issues from the last week? You know, I would say some of the most common questions we've been getting are how to handle employees who test positive, what are the steps required and recommended, and then also about gearing up to hopefully return to work and ramp things back up again if and when um, we can put that in place, hopefully sooner rather than later for most businesses. In terms of the employees who test positive, there has been evolving guidance on that as well. Um, the, the CDC put out interim guidance with regard to critical infrastructure workers. So if you are an essential business and your workers fall under these critical infrastructure worker category, there's interim guidance that is a little less restrictive and permits employees who've either been um, exposed or had close contact with an individual who's confirmed or su uh, suspected to have tested positive for COVID-19. The recommendations are that the employee can continue working, but certain steps have to be put in place, including pre-screening, that the employer should measure the temperature and assess symptoms before starting work. That raises certain issues in terms of uh, confidential medical information. 
in California, if you are maintaining records of certain information about employees, individuals, this would apply to any individual actually going through this process, um, the, the CCPA, the California um, Privacy Act, Consumer Privacy Act was recently put into place and requires certain disclosures. And I believe on our website you can access a copy of that disclosure. And if not, certainly reach out to me. I'm happy to, to walk you through that. Um, and that's if the employer is maintaining those records. Another consideration is uh, for purposes of wage and hour. And we unfortunately were anticipating that there's going to be a wave of, of litigation following our current situation, partially with regard to wage and hour claims, partially with regard to potential uh, harassment discrimination, also with employees possibly complaining about being asked to work in unsafe work environments. These are all kind of what we, what we've heard brewing. Uh, but for wage and hour, employees that are uh, being asked to go through the temperature check or symptom check process, that is paid time. And if the employee is sent home, there's reporting time pay requirements. And so keeping that in mind and making sure that employees are paid for that time, there's been a lot of recent case law about being under the control of the employer, even short periods of time, de minimis periods of time, um, bag checks, that's kind of where I'm, I'm taking this analysis from. That time that employees have to be subject to the employer's control and cannot leave the premises does have to be paid, so keep that in mind. Um, having employees self-monitor, wear a mask, socially distance, and making sure that disinfection and cleaning is increased. That's for essential workers. If it is a non-essential worker, then it would be a recommended 14-day period since the last exposure of maintaining um, that, that uh, social distance and then also self-monitoring for symptoms. Um, that could potentially trigger that emergency paid sick leave under likely the, the local orders, not necessarily the, the state order, but that would be something to consider for pay for that period. Um, and then in terms of returning to work, um, we are putting together a very detailed toolkit for employers. Um, based in part on agency guidance, the CDC put out some guidance, helpful one sheet called Reopening Businesses with Workers at Risk for Serious Illness, and provides steps that are recommended and required before an employer can uh, start to open its doors. But there's really quite a bit of, of considerations that employers have to go through in terms of maintaining social distancing protocol in the workplace, providing masks and other equipment, um, coming up with ideas like staggering breaks, um, staggering schedules, maybe adding a swing shift, um, having to do with ensuring that cleaning is, is really increased and maintained, having access to wipes and hand sanitizer, um, implementing that potential screening protocol, collecting information about where employees have and have not been and who they've been exposed to, looking at company policies, um, putting that FFCRA policy in place and a pandemic protocol policy um, is recommended. And then ongoing monitoring, monitoring of absenteeism, flexible time off policies. Um, also, when you're bringing back employees, considering how and who you're bringing back and then analyzing to make sure that there's no disparate impact on any particular group of employees. So there's a lot of a lot of factors that are going to be considered as we move forward into the next couple of weeks. 
And as I mentioned, we're putting together more detailed information. If you keep checking our website, there will be, there's actually FAQs up now on our website and there will be more uh, packaged materials available as well. And I know, I just want to mention, we're heading towards the end of the hour. If there's any questions we haven't gotten to, I'm more than happy to, uh, to email with you. My email is ncam, N-K-A-M-M, at fisherphillips.com. And, uh, and I know that we, you know, there's a lot to cover in a short amount of time, so I want to make sure that everybody's questions get addressed. Thank you, Nicole. Yes, and, and also I'll send a PDF of the questions and answers. So for those of you who have to jump off the line at 11 a.m., we totally understand, and we'll send that post-webinar email, and that post-webinar email will include the slides, the recording, and a PDF copy of the Q&As that were posed, and that will be Monday afternoon when that one is sent out. So we understand if you have to log off. If you are able to stay on, fantastic, um, please do. And Nicole, I wanted to and ask a question that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know, this was just a related question, if you don't mind if I, if I throw it in that I, I noticed. Um, in terms of employees testing positive, the obligation to disclose information about that, um, that positive test to others. And, and again, that's a very common question that's come up. And we are generally recommending to err on the side of transparency. So even if the workplace has been shut for quite a bit of time, if you receive notice from your building management that somebody in the building has tested positive, the likelihood of exposure is probably slim, but the, the requirements on employers is to potentially um, notify employees of any possible exposure. So if an employee had happened to come in to pick something up or you know, we don't know exactly the timing, erring on the side of caution and providing that information, if it is an employee in the workplace, doing so without uh, sharing any confidential or identifying information. A lot of times it will be, you know, employees will be able to kind of figure it out, but certainly not putting that information in the disclosure. And I believe on our website, we also have a model notice to employees with this information that an employee has tested positive. If you've been in close contact, the steps to take, the extra cleaning uh, methods that will, the company will be implementing. Um, you can also ask employees to sign a, a document saying that they are agreeable to sharing this information if any identifying information is disclosed. However, at a minimum to, uh, to share that information uh, confidentially is, is recommended. And then also notifying building management, any customers that the employee may have been in close contact with, any vendors, suppliers, and, um, and taking those kind of necessary steps to ensure that uh, transmission is limited to the extent possible. Nicole, what, what do you think the implications would be if an employer decides not to be transparent? Where do, where do you think mm -hmm. the risk would lie with that? Right. Any um, so, kind of? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're anticipating that there's going to be more OSHA oversight and um, OSHA is going to be looking into these potential claims and the way that employers are handling these matters a lot more carefully going forward. And so the requirement to, under OSHA in general employment law, to provide a safe uh, workplace, it, it falls under this. And so taking those steps and keeping that documentation is going to be relevant in the event of any government inquiry. And also if an employee claims that they were not notified and that they were in fact in, exposed, there could be some other intentional or um, negligence claims that, that come into play on behalf of the employer. 
um, kind of on that note, we're hearing that there's going to be some further um, information from the state and possible order with regard to workers' comp claims arising out of COVID-19 exposure, um, potentially strict liability for certain employers, there already is. Uh, also talking about reporting requirements. Some of the local orders have a requirement that any positive employee tests have to be reported either to the local agency. Um, and then OSHA has different requirements and the CDC has different recommendations. Um, but certainly being aware of what requirement applies based on where your employees are working and where you're located is going to be important to, to keep in mind. Okay, good to know. All right. So I, I want to be mindful of the time, so I'm going to go quickly through the, the next set of slides, and then we'll, we'll um, finish up on some of the Q&As. And this next slide, is, this, we talked about our wish list, and the reason that I have this on here is just so you know what we don't have guidance on currently and what we might expect to see sometime in the future. And that I've talked about is the Section 125 guidance for FSAs and just guidance in general as it relates to qualifying events, um, whether or not those are going to be expanded. As of yet, they have not. ACA measurement and stability periods, you know, what's going to happen to this time that an employee is on furlough? Is that time going to count towards their measurement period or maybe just be omitted? We, we're not sure yet. Extending COBRA grace periods, we haven't heard anything with regards to that. And with regards to buzz about, you know, rallying support for a bill that addresses, specifically addresses, you know, support for group health insurance premium payments in general, subsidies for COBRA premiums, new funds or loans for businesses to, to specifically to preserve access to health benefits. There, there's some support around a bill for that, but there is not yet anything we know of out there. So this is just what's not out there that we'd like to see. And this, Nicole already mentioned this one. I wanted to put it here so you would see here is the website. Nicole is right. It's um, the best practices for an employer who wants to reopen their doors, the CDC release guidance. I was on the Fisher Phillips website this morning. If you go to their legal alerts section, you can scroll down to workplace safety. But even when you go to the legal alerts page and you start to scroll down and see what's there, there is so much there that I imagine that would be very helpful to the majority of you to, to kind of look through and peruse and, and maybe even use as you go forward. Okay, Nicole, let's take some questions uh, that we have that we're seeing. Do you have any in mind that you want to take first or do you want me to start? Um, let's see. So one question that came in is, can an employer start FMLA when an employee is on approved for emergency paid sick leave under the FFCRA? And that would depend on the reason why the employee is taking the emergency paid sick leave. And so there's been a lot of crossover issues. You know, we have this whole leave ABC soup uh, and um, it, alphabet soup. It, it's really a, a lot of crossover questions of um, which leave applies, for what reason, when can we start the clock running? And so sometimes even making a chart or a diagram is helpful. Um, so you're going to want to, for purposes of triggering the FMLA for general reasons, not for the emergency FMLA reason, but generally, 
uh, the employee has to have a serious health condition. So certainly a, a severe case of, of COVID-19 could rise to the level of a serious health condition triggering FMLA. Um, but you're going to want to take a look at which is the qualifying reason for the emergency paid sick leave and whether the employee meets the requirements for FMLA and CIPRA. And, um, you know, some questions that have come up have also been with pregnant employees under PDL, starting the PDL clock running, and whether or not the employee would be entitled to emergency paid sick leave. And again, that's going to be fact specific, but um, if the employer um, finds out that the employee has been advised by a health provider to quarantine because of concerns of COVID, that could be a potential reason. Um, and then also taking a look at any late uh, local or state uh, paid sick leave, because a lot of the local paid sick leaves have also expanded the reasons why an employee can take underlying existing paid sick leave under companies' existing policies. How about for, we've got a question, under furloughs, do we need to continue accruing vacation, sick, or PTO benefits? Mm, good question. Um, a lot of, of policies, vacation policies, will have language that vacation does not accrue during unpaid absences unless otherwise required by law. So I would start by taking a look at your policy and seeing if that language in there is in there, because if it is, then that's your, that's your starting place. And so vacation certainly does not have to accrue under that condition. And generally vacation is accrued, um, or, or oftentimes policies will say it's accrued based on hours worked. Um, so that's another thing to take a look at. Um, but generally, there is no requirement if there if there's language in the policy or that's not the practice of the company, and you'll want to communicate that to employees as well. Same with paid sick leave. Um, and one thing to keep in mind for the furloughed employees is that if you have a standalone paid sick leave policy and you bring them back within the year, you have to reinstate any accrued unused paid sick leave into their bank, and that's under California and local law. So it's different than if you have a PTO policy and you've paid out everything, which is required, as we talked about, uh, when you're putting somebody onto furlough longer than a pay period. That's a different requirement. But if you have a standalone paid sick leave policy, you're going to want to make sure that anything they had in the bank prior is still there if they return within a year. If you furlough, do you have to provide a time frame? So generally you don't, there's not a requirement to provide a time frame, and oftentimes employers will not know what the time frame is. You can say we anticipate or our hope is, and we will monitor and stay in touch with the employee. And that's language that I would generally recommend be worked into the communication is that um, we're going to be staying in touch with you. We're going to be monitoring the situation closely and making decisions based on government orders and business needs and other considerations. Um, but in terms of having a firm return date, it's not required by law. The only thing to keep in mind is, again, if you don't return within the same pay period, you need to pay out all final pay. All right. I have a question here. It looks benefits related. If the employer has an existing HSA plan, can we add money to this that is tax-free under Section 139? How would it be used versus the regular HSA eligible expenses? The answer to this is that you, you would not do that. The Section 139 is very separate from an HSA. The HSA has annual contribution limits, so you would not want to mix the two in, in that regard. Um, the Section 139 can reimburse from the same list of eligible expenses as the HSA. 
So that's how it would be. So you could look at it that way. But the Section 139 reimbursable expenses is much more expansive than just the HSA eligible expenses. Okay. I see two questions about reporting time pay, so I'll answer those. So if an employee shows up to work and uh, they go through the symptom check or they have something otherwise that raises a flag and they need to be sent home for the day, what is the requirement? So reporting time pay requires that the employee be paid at least half the scheduled shift, no more than four hours, no less than two hours. So if the employee was scheduled to work eight hours and was sent home immediately, they need to be paid at least half, which so the four. So it's going to be based on their, their schedule. And if they did work any hours, for example, if an employee came to work, worked half the day and then sparked a fever and was sent home, if they've worked at least half their scheduled shift, there's not a reporting time pay requirement. And there are some exceptions to reporting time pay, natural disaster, um, the act of God, uh, a local order oftentimes. So this doesn't necessarily apply in every situation, but if you ha are having employees show up to work and then are sending them home, you do want to keep that in mind. Um, there was Nicole, another question about, oh, sorry, you want to throw one in? Oh, no, go ahead. I just saw one that I was going was gonna to have you answer, but uh, no, please, please go ahead. I'll just mention briefly, this is one I believe relates to the WARN Act notice. Um, and this is if you do furlough, if you're covered by the California or the federal WARN Act, so either 100 employees or 75 employees, and you are a qualifying event has taken place, for example, a plant closure or a layoff or a furlough of 50 or more employees, the requirements are to notify the employee and the union representative, the EDD, and on the EDD's website, there's helpful guidance as to uh, who to notify and what information has to be provided, and local officials. So, and on the EDD's website, that they will also direct you how to find out which local officials you need to notify, and it's going to be based on the work site. Um, so, and the war notices have to contain certain language, and they, it has been actually revised based on the COVID-19 situation. The governor um, made some modifications and relaxed the, normally it's a 60-day notice period, but because of the current circumstances, relaxed the 60-day notice period, but the notice does have to contains certain language that does have to be in there. I have a question. An employee who does not qualify for traditional FMLA since they were hired six months ago has been out on an extended unpaid leave prior to COVID and it's unrelated to COVID. Mm -hmm. Do they mm -hmm. now qualify for two weeks of FFCRA? And this one, sure. I don't see a qualifying season. Right. Listed right. out based on what we know on this on on what they've given us. Do you, Nicole? Um, I would think only if they're released to return to work and then they trigger one of the qualifying reasons. For example, you know they have now um, symptoms and are seeking a medical diagnosis or some, one of the other qualifying reasons. Um, then then it would trigger FFCRA. But otherwise, it's if you're just out for non-COVID-related medical reasons, then you're not entitled to the additional leave. Got it. That's pretty clear, I think. <laughs> All right, let's take two more here before we, we go ahead and, and sign off, just to be mindful of the time. But then we will also, everyone, please do remember, we will, I will send out a copy of the questions and answers 
via PDF and, and um, by Monday afternoon. Nicole, do you want to take one here? Um, yes, let me see if I can find it. Let's see. Do we have a template letter? We do have on our website, we have a, a template, a model notice to employees regarding employees tested positive. Um, if for some reason you can't locate it on the website, feel welcome to email me or Michelle and we'll help you identify that. And it's a very helpful guide. I, as I mentioned, it mentions that the employee without naming information has tested positive. If you've been within a close um, area to the employer and close contact, then you're to follow certain directions that the company is taking extra steps to clean and sanitize and ensure that there's a safe workplace. And if the company, if the employee has any questions, they're to follow up with a certain individual. There was an earlier question for any schools that are listening as to whether employees have to be uh, paid or are entitled to emergency paid sick leave or EFMLA during spring break or other vacation periods. Summer vacation will be coming at some point. And one of the qualifications is that the employee would be otherwise working. Uh, or work is being offered. And so if the employee is not otherwise scheduled to work or work is not available, then the employee is not entitled to emergency paid sick leave or emergency FMLA. And so during the spring bay period, work is not otherwise available or the employee would not otherwise be working, therefore it's not triggered uh, to provide those leaves. Yes, great point there because I do know, it's, I, I think most spring breaks here in LA are done. Uh, but we did have a lot of questions around that. And I also had um, questions with regards to whether or not EPSL triggers the, the FMLA count. Or, and I don't see that EPSL has any interaction with FMLA as regard to starting any type of FMLA time clock. Um, and, and Nicole, could you comment on that for us? Mm. If I understand the question, I mean, there is some overlap in that an employee who is, is trying to take emergency FMLA leave, the first two weeks can, are unpaid generally, but the employee can apply the emergency paid sick leave during that period. Um, so if that's part of the question, and in terms of, did you say something about a triggering event or a starting account of oh, clock running? So I guess that having said that, I, I guess it comes down to, are all the reasons in EPSLA also reasons that would open up an FMLA leave. Oh, I see what you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. So the emergency paid sick leave is only for the limited reason of time off to care for a son or daughter home from school or childcare. So that's the limited, and that's the more flexible. You don't have to work for the company for 12, 50 hours in a year. You don't have to have a certain number of employees working for the company within a certain um, mileage. So that's different. Um, mm -hmm. Looking at at just the emergency paid sick leave, whether it would trigger FMLA or CIFRA, you would then consider whether it, the employee is taking time off for their own serious health condition or the serious health condition of a family member. And so that's a little bit of a different uh, consideration. Thank you. Okay, I'm just gonna finish up here with uh, going back to our resources to provide. We'll close it up and then um, we'll, we'll sign off and, because we wanna be mindful of the time. So we have a few resources here I want you to take a look at. One, you can follow the boltingco.com slash blog, subscribe to that blog. If you're a Bolton client, please do contact your team for any benefit-related questions. 
And also, FinkHR has several sample forms as well as an FFCRA leave request form, return to work checklist, and so forth. For employment matters, I just cannot say it enough. FisherPhillips.com is a website I feel strongly that you should become familiar with. Check out all of the resources from not only their facts page, but the legal alerts page, which does have the, you know, the, the five steps to reopen your doors. And it has all the legal alerts in, in, the, in California that are you know, local versus federal. It's just a, a fantastic resource for employers that's out there. So I wanted to mention yeah. that. Yeah. All right. And Kamayo's Compliance Talk is now a podcast. You can listen to all three past episodes by going into iTunes and subscribing to Kamayo's Compliance Talk. You can see it there on the screen. You can listen to all three. And then this episode will drop next week, probably right around the time that we do episode five. So that's it for us. We're going to sign off. Nicole, I cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for being such a fantastic partner and and getting this information out to employers and and being willing to do that. All right. Thanks, everyone. Stay well, everyone.